Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Ilona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Hello, Ilona Thompson with Palate Exposure here. Really excited for my guest um, that I've had the privilege of knowing for a few years. She is a really prominent member of the wine and media community. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you have heard of the publication that's called Wine Business Monthly. It's really a premier wine trade publication, or I should say wine and other beverages. Um, she's a managing editor. Erin um, has quite a multifaceted background and wonderful backstory, and um, she's doing quite a few different things within the publication itself, such as webinars and other developed programs that are in development and are materializing as we speak. And she's also a writer as well as editor, which makes her very near and dear to my heart. It's my tribe. Welcome, Erin. Thank you for having me. So we want to know, first and foremost, um, where were you born and how did your life begin? How did, how did it all begin? <laughs> Well, um, this is something I usually don't admit to people in the Northern California area, but I am a Los Angeles native, specifically the San Fernando Valley. So every now and then my Valley Girl accent will pop out. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, I'm also a huge Dodger fan. Let's just throw that out there. Oh, good. <laughs> Which doesn't make a lot of friends here. <laughs> okay. So yeah, number have, one, you're an LA girl. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Uh, born and raised down in the San Fernando Valley. Um, and then, you know, I, I spent 18 years there and as soon as I could, I left and came up to the Sonoma area to go to Sonoma State University as a communications major. Um, I fell in love with the area. I met my husband at Sonoma State and decided that this is the place that I'm gonna call home. Um, kind of jumped around Mm -hmm. the Bay Area. Um, Petaluma is where I'm currently residing, but I've been in Roner Park, Novato, uh, Santa Rosa as well, but I'm finding that Petaluma is kind of the perfect place. It's where wine, food, and proximity to a big city of San Francisco is, it's, it's exactly where I want to be. This is, this is the town that I feel the most at ease in. This is a lot right there because LA, obviously LA to me is a compilation of variety of communities. It's not a city per se in the traditional classic sense. So in that sense, there's relatability, but Petaluma is more kind of country. It's charming as all get out. It's like the best kept secret. I love hanging out there, but it's interesting that you really love being there as well. Yeah, it's got this perfect um, small town feel to it, right? I go to Target or go to a restaurant and I inevitably run into somebody that I know, which can be a good thing or a very bad thing when you're, you know, haphazardly running out to do some errands and you're in your pajamas and your hair is up in a mess or is in a mess, but <laughs> like we all are now. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I, I like that everybody here is looking out for each other and genuinely wants some real connection. So this is, this is a good spot for me. That's awesome. So, um, Sonoma State, and then how did you become a managing editor of such an illustrious publication that we all are so admire? Uh, the short answer is sheer dumb luck. Um, 
I have been studying journalism all my life. Um, I'm one of those rare creatures that knew exactly what they wanted to be when they were eight years old. Um, I knew that I wanted to be a journalist and eventually in high school I realized that I wanted to be an editor. Um, so I've been studying, you know, journalism and reporting my whole life. My aunt was a writer for the Wall Street Journal, um, a lot of big national publications. My uncle was a political cartoonist. Um, and I joined the school newspaper as soon as I could in high school. You weren't supposed to be on staff until you were in the 10th grade or sophomore year. I joined it first day of ninth grade. Um, I worked my way up, became sports editor, then news editor, then editor in chief. And then I did the same thing in college. I walked into the uh, newspaper advisor's office the very first day of my college experience and said, one day I'm going to be editor-in-chief of this publication. And he kind of laughed at me, um, not kind of, he really laughed at me. He thought I was just completely mad, um, but I did it. I started as a sports writer then became sports editor, news editor, and then editor-in-chief. Um, so with that background, uh, immediately out of college, I applied to an insurance trade publication. Uh, so I was writing about specialty coverages, things like lawyers, professional liability, um, pirate insurance, which is a thing and really exciting and fun to dive into if you ever, mm. um, you know, want to go down the Wikipedia hole. Um, but I was writing about it at the same time that Obama was trying to pass through the Affordable Care Act. So all of the insurers just said, yeah, no, we're not going to make any updates to our programs. We're not going to change rates. Everything is just going to stay the status quo. Um, and I just, I was getting frustrated with that. I hated not being able to write because there was nothing happening. I could write the same story about lawyers, professional liability in my sleep. And, you know, I'd write it one month, next month, it never changed. So I got frustrated. I went on Craigslist of all places and started searching for journalism jobs. And I found a position for an assistant editor at Wine Business Monthly. And my thought process at the time was, well, it's an editor position, which is the career path I want to go down. So this is a good move for me. But it's also about wine. I like wine. There's red wine and there's white wine. And I like both. And that was the extent <laughs> of my wine knowledge. Um, at the time, my friends and I were drinking, you know, magnums of barefoot Moscato, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But I thought that, that was it, you know? <laughs> I love it. Humble beginnings. I, we still, uh, most of us are in the wine industry now and we still make fun of ourselves for that one. Um, there's nothing wrong with it. It was just, you know, we didn't know any better. We didn't know that there were smaller producers. We thought what you saw in Safeway was all that there was. Hey, it's gateway. I'm just saying. Exactly. So I applied, uh, was hired within a week and I have been there ever since working my way up. Um, I got a promotion to senior editor a few years ago and then almost a year ago to the day, um, I was promoted up to managing editor. Well, first of all, congratulations. Well earned. My God, talk about tenacity, but I'm still on, I knew I was going to be an editor in high school part because most of us <laughs> in high school don't even know what color hair we want. <laughs> I was definitely one of those two. I, I, uh, had some interesting hair colors and cuts back then. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know necessarily why I fell in love with it so much. Um, at the time, I was a very shy kid, so interviewing people was still frightening to me. 
Um, talking to new people was frightening to me. Um, but I loved it. And I think it was, I think the editor realization came when I realized that I could help other people make their articles better. Right, all my friends came to me with their essays at the time and I, I helped them refocus it and cleaned up the grammar and I was constantly editing my younger sister's work. And I actually enjoyed it. I loved seeing the finished product and knowing that they did well. So I, yeah, I guess, I don't know exactly when it was, but I, I did realize that I enjoyed doing that. You know, it's gotta be really empowering to be able to help people kind of put their thoughts in a succinct way so that it's more, it's easier to absorb and, yeah. you know, better flow and such like that, because we all read pieces of information that's like stream of unconsciousness, in, you know, Gosh, in our yes. lives. So how cool it must have been to realize I have this gift. I mean, at some level, because you enjoyed it so much, you also knew that this was your thing, right? It's just there's something internal that happened. And then you knew that you could really help people express themselves. Yeah. It's like a puzzle, right? I love puzzles. I love being able to take a paragraph from down below and say, this is the meat, this is the cool thing. This is the thing that people need to take away from your article or your essay or whatever it is you're writing and move that up to the top and make it effective, right? Writing is nothing if it's not effective. If it doesn't move you, if it doesn't inform you, it's, it's just words on a page. Wow. I wish that was in a t-shirt. Um, <laughs> like seriously, it's, you know, in the writing community, there's a little bit of fear and trepidation. And of course, you know, a lot of writers depend on editors for work. So there's this removed kind of a, you know, relational piece when, yes, they kind of oversee everything, but it's not very humanizing when you're just in charge. And the way you just described it, it's like, wait, I'm just trying for you not to bury the essence of your story. I am a facilitator of your voice, right? Isn't that what it is? Exactly. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've sent an article back to somebody and, you know, there's a lot of red in there um, and they get offended. They're like, they think I'm trying to be mean. They think mm -hmm. they're not good writers. And I go, no, that's not what I'm trying to do here. What I'm trying to do is help you be the most effective you can to to help express your vision. I'm not trying to change your voice, but I know my publication and my audience probably better than anyone. And I'm just trying to make sure it's also helpful for them, right? I do the editing out of love, not out of contempt. It is such, it's so important. I just want to repeat it again, out of love. I mean, it's such a, it's a beautiful word, but it's kind of a soft word, right? And when it comes to editorial, people have a different kind of almost physical sensation. It's like, you know, more along the lines of straighten up and do, do it correctly. Uh, but it really is what you described. You want the best for all the parties concerned. You're this kind of galvanizer of the writers and their creativity and their knowledge and their passion, but also the reader who's looking to you to produce something that's succinct, that's consumable, that's to the point that leads with the story, you know, the main point of it as opposed to buries it. And you're kind of this mediator, right? In a sense, you want to make sure both audiences, you know, get to the point where they need to be. Exactly. And to be perfectly honest, if we're not providing content in a way that our readers want to, to consume that content, we're not going to be around anymore. So we can't hire the writers and the freelancers, right? It's, it's a balance. Um, Yes, I see that. 
and it's such a symbiotic relationship. Everything has to be in concert. Everything has to flow. So it's, it's a very important job. And it's, wow, that's almost overwhelming job as I think about it, as we're kind of chatting about it. And you've been at the publication for many years, as you've shared. So tell us a little bit more about some of the major rewards and challenges of the job. Well, the rewards are definitely um, just seeing and hearing from people in the industry that what we've done made a difference. Mm. Uh, and whether that's honestly through our publication or our events as well, um, I love, one of my, my favorite things to do is at our events, take a step away from the room, don't be, not sit down with the rest of the attendees and just look at them. And if you can see that most of the attendees are engaged and actually paying attention to the speaker and paying attention to the screen and not their phones, you go, wow, I delivered something that they're finding useful and are hopefully taking back to their wineries or to their vineyards and implementing practices that are gonna make their businesses better. And just knowing that, that you know, making those 10 phone calls to find the one speaker mm. made a difference to, to a marketing manager, to a winemaker, that's, it, yeah, it's, it's an incredible feeling. That's the most rewarding aspect of my job. Mm -hmm. Is there any unique challenges, you know, besides just obviously a lot of editing? Um, I know that you spend a lion's share of your time really combing through other people's work, but what other bits and pieces can you tell us about that presents, you know, kind of a unique challenge? I think the biggest challenge, because we cover the wine industry, is how diverse our content coverage is mm. um, and how and having to jump between those two so you know multitasking is easy if you're focusing on roughly the same thing mm -hmm. but when you're jumping from editing an article on phenolics to creating a session about hr requirements to hosting a webinar on virtual tastings and marketing and trying to tailor all of those different pieces to a, an audience with a wide variety of experience, it's, it can be really hard to jump from one to the next, right? I have to put my science brain on for one article and then, you know, more of a, a feature hat on for, or feature brain for another article. And they're not necessarily the easiest things to switch in between. That's um, actually fascinating. I haven't even thought of that, but also the breadth and depth of general knowledge and wine knowledge that one would have to have. I understand that you can do fact checking and you know technical data, but still you have to have a pretty in-depth idea to edit an article on something like you know alternative closures or like you mentioned phenolics or means of production. How does that work? A lot of falling on my sword at the very beginning. Um, when I started, like I said, I didn't know a thing about wine. And I will be entirely honest, one of the pitfalls of knowing that I wanted to be an editor so early on was that I didn't necessarily pay as much attention in chemistry and biology as I should have. <laughs> um, and it was a lot, I had to do a lot of asking for help. I had to, you know, talk to winemakers and ask for clarification. I was mm -hmm. constantly running things by our editor. Um, I spent a lot of time on Google and reading wine books and trying to up my knowledge. Um, it, it took it took a long time. Um, I wouldn't say I'm an expert now by any means, but I'm 
I'm certainly getting a better understanding of it. Um, yeah. I happen to know that you are very thorough and you're very detail oriented. You insist on exacting data, which takes a lot of time. And I just want the folks that are listening to that read the publication or maybe are not familiar and hopefully that will ignite the interest um, is that you are absolutely fierce when it comes to fact checking, which particularly in a larger scope, there's a lot of complaints about faux media, fake media, fake news, all that. I mean, there seems to be that a lot of opinions and hard data is harder to come by. Mm -hmm. um, but in your case, the veracity is extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, and we have a pretty firm policy at Wine Business Monthly, and I'm one of the stronger enforcers of it, of keeping, you know, advertising and editorial separate as much as possible. Um, I always try to think of my, when it comes to what we publish, I try to think about what I would want as a reader. And mm -hmm. I don't necessarily want a pitch from a sales guy when I'm attending a conference or reading an article, right? Mm -hmm. um, I've even been fooled when reading other publications, not necessarily in the wine business, just general magazines. I'd be, I'll be reading something and not realize it's sponsored content or advertorial until later, and that irritates the crap out of me. So <laughs> Wine Business Monthly, we don't do that, especially since we have to talk about products because that's important to winemakers we try to keep it as unbiased and factual as possible um, we ask winemakers to detail their experiences good and bad and for the most part everybody's really excited to do that because it builds the collective knowledge um, if we're talking about sales figures you know we don't just throw random numbers out there we look at nielsen we have a whole separate arm wines finds analytics that deals exactly with data and they are very exacting with that information. You know, what you get from them is accurate because they vet it like no other. And so it's nice to know that we have that reliable aspect because I don't want to tell people that, for example, you know, rosé sales are up 120% and there's this huge boom when really they're only up 60% off a very small base. It's important to keep that context in there because mm. I remember a couple years ago, all you would read about in publications was the rise of rosé, the rise of rosé. Well, let's remember that that, you know, huge percentage increase was off a small base and still represented less than half a percentage of the market share. Mm. Right? Rosé is popular, yes, because everybody's talking about it, but just trying to put everything into perspective is really important to us. So, Well, what it sounds like to me is that your publication certainly holds itself highly accountable, which is so refreshing to hear because there's not enough of it for my taste in the world at large. And you also have made it a mission to really help the small business and large business, but you know, I want to focus on the small business because I just am such a champion. Um, really improve and give them tools to be better at what they do. Um, and I think that's really, really important. So you have had a lot of experience in that field is there any advice is there any suggestions that you have as far as the media role in general in helping the small business you know succeed really ultimately yeah um i mean the media's role in helping small business is really just to put the right information out there and the in the real information out there let me clarify that right mm -hmm. um, as 
when I think of small businesses, I think of the small mom and pop who it's maybe, you know, a couple and a few employees at most who don't necessarily have the resources to hire consultants mm -hmm. to comb through tons of information to figure out what's right for their business. Um, maybe they don't necessarily have the business expertise. They're following a passion project. So it's our job to make sure that the information we're giving them is as accurate and relatable and viable as possible, right? I could, I could write a million articles about insurance for the wine industry if I wanted to, but is that really helpful to them? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. if, if you were to like literally have a direct conversation with a small business owner right now and they were asking you for advice, and it's really a two-parter, so I'll start with the first part. In general, as a matter of best practice, quote unquote, or just as a matter of um, overall strategy, what is your key suggestion? Like, if you're a small business in a wine space, what should like? What are the tenets? My well, my first tenet would be stop thinking about how it's always been. Mm. Now is not the time to default back to how you did it ten years ago, five years ago, even a year ago. Um, and I would have said this pre-COVID too. I just want yeah. to clarify that. Yes. Um, start looking forward. Start thinking about creative ways to meet the consumer where they are. Start thinking about creative varieties or think outside of Cabernet Sauvignon. Is there another variety that's going to grow well in your area? Because um, I think consumers are a little bit more open or becoming more open to those alternate varieties. But my main thing is just don't get stuck in the day-to-day -day and what you've always done. Be creative, be forward-thinking, take inspiration from outside the wine industry to see what other consumer packaged goods are doing, what other brands are doing, and relate it back to wine. Uh, that would be my key piece of advice. That's absolutely awesome. And the second part of it, of course, we're recording in the time of COVID, so let's acknowledge the pink elephant in the room. But I don't want to limit it to that. I wanted to ask you in the crisis mode, what should a business that's really struggling to keep, you know, the roof over their head and the employees and such like that, is there anything that they should be doing in that type of situation? I think the first thing is to check yourself before you send any emails out or yes. jump on any bandwagons. Um, I, I have seen quite a few emails that have just completely missed the mark, um, and not just in the wine space, from all sorts of brands too that, I mean, we all heard this, I think we all heard the story about this clothing brand that sent out an email to subscribers and, to, and through social media asking them to spend their stimulus check on their website. Oh my God, I haven't heard Eesh. that, but um, yeah, yeah. Not good. You know, especially when people are panicky and anxious, COVID or fires, you know, you want to just keep it light. You're not trying, you can't be selling necessarily right now. Yeah. Um, especially in the early stages of any sort of crisis, the messaging is we're here for you. Mm. So important. Wow. Wise words. Um, let's talk about audiences for a second, because one of the uh, cornerstones in any business is to identify who you're talking to. Um, and, you know, your audience obviously is dominated by trade, I would assume, right? It's not because by definition, it's not a consumer publication. 
but it also the demographics have to be quite varied, right? And you're part of the younger generation. I don't want to beat up on the, the M word, the millennials, but what are the different dynamics vis-a-vis -vis those audiences from your perspective? Can you give me a little clarification on, on that specifically to Wine Business Monthly or just wine demographics in general? Actually, I would like to hear both. So, and probably the latter, the more expansive version of your perspective of what dialogue and how is it different should be facilitated with the younger generation. Yeah, so I, I like you, kind of grapple with the M word and millennial. Um, part of it is because I am one. Um, <laughs> but I think this is true for all generations. They all hate being lumped into one bucket, mm -hmm. right? Boomers probably aren't a fan of being lumped into the okay boomer bracket, you know, let's, let's be honest. Um, but when it comes specifically to wine, I, I try to think about it more in education levels. Okay. Right. Because there are some young people who know a lot more about wine and are really interested consumers. Yeah. And there are some people like my, my parents who have not a clue anything about wine. And when I try to drink it at home and explain what's going on, it, it just, you know, they roll their eyes and it glaze, they glaze over. Um, so I always try to think about it in education levels and interest levels, right? Um, so you have to tailor your marketing to them, right? Um, how, you know, for your more uh, interested uh, audience, go into those technical details, talk about the bricks and, you know, specific winemaking methods for the, you know, not necessarily less interested, but the less educated, you know, talk about the experience of wine. This is the wine that I drink when I'm uh, barbecuing or, you know, when you've had a long day at work and you need a serious drink to, to ruminate on the day, right? This is the wine I drink. And those are very simple, simple ways of describing it. But, you know, it's the same thing when I edit, you have to take off your own hat and put on somebody else's right what would a consumer want to know about this wine what is what are their experiences what are their knowledge levels and how can i best communicate so that they understand it wow that's really the best approach in life isn't it walk a mile in somebody else's shoes or at least try because that kind of informs how you relate to it yourself and then you could expand on that when it comes to relating into a larger group right your audience exactly and something that i think is so um overlooked is actually asking your audience what they want mm. um you know i i've spent a lot of time looking at virtual tastings over the last month uh, obviously because of covid we are unable to meet in person so every winery has jumped on the virtual tasting bandwagon um, and it's that's actually a good thing i think this is a great way for us to meet consumers in their homes but are you asking them how they want their virtual tastings uh. do they want one-on-one -on -one? Do they want to be able to invite their friends? Do they just want a quick 10 minute check-in for happy hour on Facebook? Mm. What is it? How, how did they want to engage with you on a personal level? Um, and this goes for virtual tastings and just about anything, right? Your consumer in New York may want something different than your consumer in California. Talk to them, ask them, what do they want? Do they want your winemaker to talk about Chardonnay for an hour on a webinar? Or do they want the winemaker to talk about the vineyard dog? Hmm. You know, and, and meet them where they're at. It's so important. So far we've learned that 
curiosity, active listening, doing your research, having it to be a dialogue as opposed to a monologue, not talking at people, not labeling them, but really delving into who they are and why. Yeah. All, you know, phenomenal assets in any realm, not just in the wine business, but, you know, anything that you have going on business-wise, those are good principles to abide by. Speaking of good principles and good communication, you know, before this COVID thing happened, you travel an awful lot and a lot of people in the wine media business wind up um, on press trips on a regular basis. If there was a few publicists tuning in to this podcast, I know you work with them very closely, so I think it would be helpful for them to hear a perspective of someone that, um, you know, has not only traveled extensively, but you travel with a specific purpose, not just to explore, but really you have um, a set of objectives and how can they be best met? Yeah, um, and this is something that I, so I guest lecture at some local community colleges on wine media specifically. And I, I like to touch upon this exact point because eventually these are the people who are going to be doing marketing for wineries or for PR agencies mm -hmm. is, it's that same principle we just talked about. Get to know your reporters, get to know your editors, understand their publications and their needs. I've turned down press trips because while it sounds absolutely phenomenal and the wanderluster in me goes, yeah, I really wanna see this region, there's no angle. There's, there's, they're going to wineries and they're setting up the press tour in a way that it's not actually going to be beneficial for me. Mm -hmm. um, so, I know editors are all busy and I'm pretty sure any editor or writer who hears this is going to just shake their fist in anger at me. The conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Pal Exposure featuring Alona Thompson.